Welcome to 3 a.m. What's keeping you up at night? How do I begin? How do I speak to you today? I am 60 years old. I am white. I am a woman. I have children. I am sad, enraged, heartsick, ashamed, and furious. Was it hearing a grown man in the middle of the day held down with a knee on his neck screaming for his mother that did it? Was it a young man who simply went up the street for an iced tea at a convenience store later dead after being injected with a sedative while three members of the police attempted to arrest him as he simply walked home with his iced tea? Was finally understanding that the talk whites give their children and the talk people of color give their children had in fact a life or death difference in its content? Was it helping to fill out a historical timeline at an anti-racist conference and realizing I knew more European history than that of my own country? I could go on. For the balance of 2020, this podcast will take this white woman on a journey to become much more than a better white person, much more than someone who says, oh, that's terrible, and goes on with her every day. Through conversations and the mentoring of dear friends and new acquaintances, I will look at how to become an anti-racist in the roles I play in my life to cause real change in this great country. I will make mistakes, missteps, and certainly embarrass myself. My guide through this is the amazing Tanya Odom, my friend and now mentor. We share the love of our alma mater, Vassar College, and our commitment to each other to grow in ways that make the world better. I ask you to listen to our conversation as I begin this journey. I ask you to share it. I ask you to join me, help me, guide me. There is so much ahead. Let's get started. Let's jump in. Tanya, it is so great to be in your company uh, as we guide this you know, white middle-aged woman through a journey to become a better white person. I don't know how else to say that. I, I will share that as we begin this journey, it is intentional. I found that there were six months left to the second season of 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night. And uh, Mr. Floyd had just been murdered. And you and I have been talking I think now over a year about race and I didn't know what to do with this space, but knew that it was important to open it up and perhaps even to, gosh, my stomach is in my throat, even to be appropriate uh, vulnerability to allow this platform to be open so that we could figure out some way to have some impact that goes beyond a to-do list. Mm -hmm. kind of celebrates the forever journey, uh, particularly for for white people, to understand that being in the supremacist power structure affords an ignorance that many of us, particularly those who are my age, you know, just truly didn't know, understand, or in fact, were resistant to see. And so when I reached out to you, I do it and continue to do it with with great humility, so I'm I'm very excited that we have this time together in the immediate, but also as you help me in this journey over at least six episodes on the different roles uh, a white person holds 
and how they can become better as they look at these issues through a lens of humanity rather than defensiveness or irritability, right? Anger. So I'm, first of all, I'm very honored, particularly with your tremendous reputation that you're taking the time to go through this with me. So thank you for that. I'm very excited to see kind of what will transpire. And mm-hmm. the hope is that it, it will be helpful to others and not as a curiosity, certainly not as a cure, uh, but as, as a way others can begin to take the responsibility to understanding what it could take or what it might mean to move forward and be a better white person. So I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you. And what a beautiful beginning. And I think that, you know, I believe that a lot of the challenges that we have and that we're seeing right now are about or can somewhat be connected to the lack of dialogue about race or naming race specifically. And so I think just having these conversations, even if they're clumsy, even if they may not be exactly the way you want them to be, or, um, and by the way, thank you for always praising me and supporting me. I make mistakes too, right? And I think in terms of whether it be language that I use or being impatient or wanting too much or not identifying the own my own privilege as a person with white skin who identifies as a woman of color. So I think there's so much to be learned. And I think in some ways, a lot of these dialogues that are happening now are paving a new course. And I think that's the important part of it. Yeah. Thank you for giving some sense for everyone in the conversation to understand that we all come with our own foibles and mm-hmm. um, as well as sensibilities. And I think that those kinds of conversations can cause people to be more open to the beginning of conversations about race and about what it means to have perhaps, and you know, these words, I'm just getting stuck in them, but even, you know, I hate to use the words benign ignorance, um, And I don't think that they're valid, except that I'm not sure there's another way. I'll learn. I'll learn in the next, you know, episodes. I guess the best way perhaps to begin this journey is to understand, are there certain things, pieces to the journey that would be good to get out up front? I'm thinking of kind of easy stuff like vocabulary or, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like the pieces Mm -hmm. of the journey, like if we had a backpack, right, what would we put in it? And so as we structure this journey that will go over several months, what are some of the things, what are some of the components, the ingredients, the materials, the items that I need to pack to -hmm. get ready? Um, and, and let me change that image a little bit from backpack. I mean, I, I think starting back with what's the vocabulary, right? Yeah. I think. So can we start there? Sure. Actually, I like the backpack. So one, because um, as you know, there's a very sort of important article um, by Peggy McIntosh called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack of White Privilege. And she talks about this backpack that many of us wear that we don't even know we're wearing that has aspects of privilege that we haven't unpacked. 
Um, and interestingly enough, I read it when I was in college and we share sort of allegiance and gratitude to our <laughs> alma mater. But I also had Peggy Mac. We, I was lucky to have Peggy McIntosh come and speak when I was at Vassar. Um, oh, and I have wow. to say, uh, her words are just so um, relevant and important today. And there's actually a TED Talk, which I can send you, that she talks about looking at systems and systems of inequity. And so I actually think the backpack analogy is really a good one. So so vocabulary. So let me, um, I'm going to read a James Baldwin quote, which interestingly enough, I read I was reading a lot at the beginning of the, not the beginning, but at the point during the pandemic and the crisis around COVID-19, when particularly in New York, which as everyone knows is an epicenter, or was an epicenter, mm. when we started to see the disparate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. And when people like Dr. Ibrahim Kendi, who many of us know his book, mm -hmm. How to Be an Anti-Racist, but he was writing pieces for The Atlantic and other places saying we have to, in fact, look at the data based upon race. So in the beginning, what many people may not understand or know is that our, our lack of focus on race and structural inequities even inhibited us from seeing the data. And so I started reading this quote when I was on webinars and, and sessions, which is James Baldwin's quote, which says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Yes. Yes. And I think about that before we talk even about language, um, because I think that what I would put in the backpack and what language I think would be helpful would be an understanding of maybe race, right? To really look and unpack the fact that race is in fact a social construct created by human beings who at the time when they started to think about this construct, I'm not sure they understood <laughs> what they would actually be doing, but created this construct of inferiority and superiority mm. that actually lives in so many of the systems and so many of, of media images, so many of the mythology we have about our history. And so I think even using language like race is interesting. So I actually always push back in sessions when people say, well, race is only, only a social construct. It's a social construct with very real implications and very real um, sort of um, historical importance and also um, impact, right? So even if it's a social mm -hmm. construct, the social construct was embraced and the social construct has sort of been an underlying focus of, of an underlying foundation, not focus of a lot of what happens in our society, whether it be in schools, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in places of worship, all of those things, the economy, mm -hmm. um, all of that. So I think just race, understanding race. I think the other thing that you and I've talked about is privilege and that can be hard for people who are listening when we're thinking about the fact that we may have grown up poor or we may have grown up um, in an environment that, in fact, um, we had loss or grief early on in our life or where there was trauma or abuse um, or maybe where we, you know, didn't grow up seeing ourselves as someone who was confident or someone who was worthy. And so I think for some people who hear the word privilege and white privilege, that pushes people the wrong way sometimes because we can hear people say that they actually didn't have privilege growing up and they worked for what they had. And I think when we hear the term white privilege, 
for me, what's important to understand is that some of us, because of the color of our white skin, and this is where Peggy McIntosh's work is helpful, we have what she calls unearned privileges. And she has this list, which could be interesting to go over, but things like, I'm never asked to speak for all biracial people or all New York people. Um, I can go to the store and not be followed around. I could go and try to take out a loan or go to get a home and not be worried that the color of my skin is going to get in the way. So it's not as much about having this sort of luxurious life and always having things go well, but it's about actually embedded systems and embedded advantages or disadvantages based upon the color of skin. So, so privilege would be another one. Yeah, I like that. Kind of which we are using that kind of economic Hollywood understanding of privilege versus your point of, I appreciate that you brought up, I don't have to speak for all white people, right? Nobody says, oh, well, you know, you're, you're a person of color. So what do you all think, right? I've never had that. I might've had that as a woman, Mm -hmm. but but probably not. I've never had to worry about housing, right? It was mostly the size of the house. It was never that. Um, I am a, I'm a second generation in terms of college educated. So it was, it was where, not if, you know, those, those kinds of, and as you and I have spoken, never been followed in a domestic or European store, perhaps on another occasion, but not in a predominantly white country or store, etc. I've also never had to tell my children um, Mm -hmm. to fear those who uh, we entrust with our protection. I've never had to tell them to put their hands on a steering wheel if they're pulled Mm -hmm. over, right? I've never had to tell them to not wear certain clothing because, because somebody else might encase a stereotype that because of the race, social construct and the inhumanity of intent and impact, right? Used in Mm -hmm. a very evil way that they're going to be seen as something, not even as a, as a person, but as something that could either do harm or not be enough. I've never had that. So for me, that's, you're exactly right. Breaking down and unpacking the word privilege so that whites can say, yeah, but, but then they have Mm -hmm. to understand it's about not even having certain conversations. It's about not hearing the stories about men and women, moms and dads of color, staying awake until the wee hours to make sure that either they hear their child pull into the driveway or are ready for a phone call. It's those conversations, even in a community boardroom or an organization or a business where the full pressure of the color of your skin somehow is going to be representative of an entire race of people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think privilege is also, it is an interesting word, and we've got to be very clear that it's not about, you know, going to Tiffany's to buy a pin or going Mm -hmm. to Palm Springs to golf or, you know, going to backpack in Europe, right? It really is about being alleviated from some very significant pain points that are, in fact, simply rites of passage for some folks who are of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
So I, I do appreciate setting both of those that race has been constructed for a hierarchy for the purpose of keeping some above, better, whatever than others for the use of those who are perceived as better. Let me also just say, because I just, I want to make sure everybody understands, and it does take a little bit away from our conversation, but just to set the stage. So Tanya and I are hundreds of miles away. um, Mm -hmm. And because of COVID, there's no studio. So there may be some outside noises that happen. And we have decided to just let that go. So it is an authentic conversation in a, in a time of COVID. We also want to make sure that everyone knows that were we in the studio, our you know voices would sound really luscious on some beautiful microphones that <laughs> Relationary Marketing has. And right now I've got like old earbuds on, et cetera. But the conversation is important and that's why we wanted to continue. So I've digressed just a little bit. I know we can collect our thoughts and go back about race and privilege in terms of a base of vocabulary. Tanya, is there anything else that would be helpful? It's such a great question, actually. I mean, I think what's come up in the last couple of weeks more than it ever has would be things like, you know, systemic racism, right? Or systemic oppression, which I don't think people use as much. Or language that we just talked about, Dr. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I think the framing of anti-racism hasn't always been one that we think about or use that language in the past. And I think Dr. Kendi's framing, which basically is that it's not enough just to say, you know, racism's bad or I'm not a racist. It's actually the important part in his sort of framing is what are we doing? What's the action related to being an anti-racist, which I think is a different framing than we've seen. It's much different. And I love where the conversation is going. So instead of going, oh, tisk tisk, isn't that too bad? Mm-hmm. The, the anti-racist language demands a proactive responsibility to change things. And as I have talked with other whites in particular of various ages, a little bit about this series, but also just a lot about having these conversations more openly and understanding that the bounty of people that I get to talk with is incredible. And and so getting this huge vision of kind of where people sit and how generationally there may be um, some differences, multi-generationally, of course there are, geographically there's differences, experience-wise there's differences, social context-wise there are differences. But one of the things that continues to come up, and as we build the items to go into the backpack and we're starting about vocabulary and moving a little bit more into action, some folks particularly are ginned up to be Mm anti-racist and are ginned up to find the to-do list to be a part of that. Now, some of that, and I'll call it out, some of it may just be to wear the badge of that. It does alleviate some guilt. It you know, you can be a, a good person. You can publicly kind of put that badge on and like, look at me. I'm not racist. I'm actually anti-racist. Mm-hmm. But when pressed, like, what does that mean? What are you doing? There seems to be this assumption of understanding, assumption of guilt and uh, responsibility at this at the same time, but still seeking a to-do list in a variety of degrees. But like, just tell me what to do. 
some interesting right. conversations I've had over over the time, um, at, you know, when we've really kind of honed in on these conversations, is really kind of understanding and hearing from people of color. And this is one of my favorite quotes is, I'm not going to carry your burden. And right. to me, that's really saying, why are you asking those who are oppressed to alleviate your pain or somehow tell you how to dismantle you, the structure that you have built, and if not built, that you have maintained, and if not knowingly maintained, continue to prosper from? Right. I think everything. So you listed so beautifully, like benefiting from, create all of those things, supporting whether knowingly, you know, that's the unconscious or conscious bias piece. I think also for me, it's, yes, it's about, you know, why should I be doing this? But it's also, if you really want to be an ally and do the work, I have to quote, do the work, right? Mm. Like I have to look at myself. I, I told you, I think I told you this on the phone the other day, Ken Hardy says that, you know, this is an inside out job. Dr. Ken Hardy does a lot of work on race, racism and racial trauma. And he even said, before you go up to say, after the George Floyd murder and all of the Black Lives Matter protests, and we'll get into this in a little bit, just in terms of the last three weeks or four, almost four, right, a month since mm. the murder, you know, the conversations. But this has come up, this whole notion of sometimes white people wanting to go up to a black person and asking, like, what should I do? Or, you know, <laughs> what's going on? Or I didn't see this. And it's sort of like, OK, first of all, you haven't seen this, which to many people, including myself, who's been doing this work for 25 years, that's really hard to hear. It's really hard mm. to hear that it took what some were saying, the combination of COVID-19 to disproportionately impact black and brown communities in places like New York. And then it took the murder of George Floyd and then on being videotaped and shared, going viral. And then it took protests in support of Black Lives Matter around the world, right, which is not just here that it took mm. that for people to say it exists. So I think we also have to hear in our zealous, even passion and true intentional caring that there's still an element of privilege in that of not having to sort of know and carry this for a long time. So I think some white people are actually taken aback when people are saying sort of like, didn't you know this, right? Or when I do check in feeling words and people say, not surprised, and other people are sort of sitting there going, this is horrific. This is a travesty. This is so there's a little bit of that sometimes, you know, this this where have you been? OK, I get that you may not have seen this, but understand that that impacts me just you saying that. And then the last piece, and I this was so touching to me. There was a conversation that I facilitated where a woman who identified as white said, listen, I keep hearing that people of color by from people of color that they should not be the ones to sort of help me with my learning and, you know, to do all this. And she said, but then what am I supposed, where am I supposed to get the information? Like, how am I supposed to learn? <laughs> mm. And a black woman responded, you know, and I've heard a lot of responses for the last month, but this to me has really stuck with me. She said, we didn't learn our history. Mm -hmm. We had to go out and find it and research it and learn more. She said, we read the same history books you did, which means it left out our history. And she named things that had been left out. And she said, so we had to do the work to go and do it. So now that there's enough information out there and there's sort of some, what's your skin in the game around really sort of working on these issues and working 
to sort of learn or unlearn whatever you've done. So I think it's all of the things you said, plus the, the sort of going against this multiple realities of the world we live in. We do not live in a country or in a city or in a town that is the same for everyone. And that seems to be for some people just, um, not that it's brand new, but that that's settling in right now. Yeah, I do like the phrasing multiple realities rather than different realities because they are implicitly, but they are multiple. And it's interesting how they can intersect and even the intersection has not caused some people, and I, believe me, I'm part of that membership. So if I use words that make it sound like others, then I need to find new vocabulary. We have talked at length about my complete ignorance, even though uh, well-educated, I didn't internalize it. And I think that's the difference. It's, um, And I'm still learning. This is why we're doing this. And it is uncomfortable to be extremely vulnerable and say, I, d- I don't know where to start. And to have a person of color that I truly respect you know, say to me in a side conversation, I'm like, well, just what books, you know, what chats, what podcasts, what articles, what should I be doing? And then just with a very, very earnest look, say, that's your work. That's your work. So it was interesting because when you also said that, I went right back to the beginning of our conversation where we're like, oh, okay, you're a person of color. So for people of color, can you tell me what they are thinking or how they would respond or would they like yeah. this for dinner? You know, it's there's almost this antiseptic relationship with other humans based upon something that can't be changed. And we have constructed based upon simply that we have constructed mm-hmm. these societies within societies because of the color of somebody's skin, which really robs all of us, robs all of us from an understanding of what humanity could be mm-hmm. because of this uh, barrier that was created as a as a social construct to keep a lot of people down and a few people on top. Yeah. But I think what you just did to me is the process for all of us, for any learning. It's, oh, maybe that framing isn't really correct. You know, I'm a mindfulness practitioner and that's what we work on all the time that, you know, to notice the thoughts that are in your coming up over and over in your brain or to notice when there's a tightness in your chest or to notice when you're stressed. I mean, so it's sort of this mindful awareness of, oh, wait, I was, this is going back to the beginning when I sort of made that assumption or said that thing as opposed to shutting down, getting defensive. And I think, you know, there's a larger conversation about how, in fact, many of us don't want to look vulnerable about anything, in particular about race or particularly about race. But in general, you know, those of us who sort of have made a career for ourselves, a name for, you know, who many people don't want to look vulnerable. So I think there's also that. And then I think there are a lot of people walking around who think they know about race and racism or even American history's construct of race and power and and really don't. And I say that as someone who watched um, the PBS reconstruction special twice Mm. when it was on and had this notion of being sort of someone who studies history, who embraces anything related to civil human rights and race in the United States of America. And I watched this 
special, which was so brilliantly done. And I thought, I don't know most of this. I didn't mm. learn most of this. And so, you know, how do, how do I deal with that? Well, what I did for the several months after I watched it is any speech <laughs> that I made, any session that I did, any leadership dialogue that I was in, I talked about the fact that I watched it and I learned and it was something that others could learn from. So, you know, there's learning for all of us. I think that's the, that's the hard part. Once you start to uncover that we weren't told the truth about so many things and that there have been so many layers that have been set up that divide us, in addition to 400 years of enslaving people, right? I mean, that's like, you know, 400 years of a history of sort of talking about that. But what does that look like, right? When we unpack all of that and say, okay, we're going to make mistakes. Yeah, and I hope that we also come to a place where there's learning for everyone. And again, we're asking the oppressed to provide immeasurable amounts of patience, right? Immeasurable amounts Mm -hmm. of giving. I want to be really careful to say not because it could sound like just coddle us and we'll get there. And right. It just at our convenience, when it's convenient for us, we'll delve in, you know, we're being barraged right now. And I'm talking as a kind of a generalist white person, which is, I know is not fair, but Mm. you know, this is uncomfortable right now. So I'll I'll figure out how I can at least be in the dialogue. Uh, And then as you get more into it, you're like, Oh, okay. So this is, Oh, wow. This is like lifelong. So this means that there are going to be consequences and costs, et cetera, to all of this. And I have to be strong enough. And I think that's why when we go back to, as you and I have been talking over the last several weeks, this lens of humanism, this lens of humanity, where those roles everybody plays, we've talked about that in terms of structuring the conversations, but looking at people, and I always look through, I mean, I've just had, it's been a blessing to be a mom. And, you know, for me, that's been the most important role that I've ever, ever had. And so if you aren't stricken by the fact that a young man who just went to go get some iced tea, right, um, Mm. and had on a, you know, one of those longer draped face masks comes back, is slight is, you know, very, very onto himself. Somebody calls and says, I don't think he's a problem. Just letting you know he's out here. Um, And then three policemen come and figure that he evidently is so dangerous. They have to, you know, give him a sedative, which then causes Mm -hmm. a heart attack and his death. As a mom, I'm beginning now to think, and listen, as old as I am, it is not a comfortable thing to say out loud because it's not like this is new stuff to me, right? Mm. But starting to think about the mom when somebody has to knock on her door and her her son who was just a good person and ask the officers, I just want to go home. I'm just going home. That they have to explain? How do you start that conversation? So for me, internalizing it as a mother has been at least a bridge. You know, you and I've talked about the talk, which in the white world usually has to do with sex. And for people of color, it's how do I keep my child alive? Because they've they've gotten their driver's license. I mean, I worried about the girls perhaps having a flat tire when it was late at night, right? And being vulnerable as a young woman or getting in an accident that that would be why the officer may knock on the door. I mean, that's my dread. It's never been a dread about being incarcerated or being tased or being Mm -hmm. shot um, because they were driving while white. Mm -hmm. As a mother, I'm embarrassed to say it, but 
my heart has been struck because there are other mothers out there. And again, I apologize. I, I know it's late, but just having to go through thinking about that. Um, and, and, and Tanya, I don't know why it's this time. And we, we talked about kind of the isolation and anonymity of COVID, um, not just as how, it, how it's affecting the demographic that we've lifted up earlier. And traditionally, all, all hardships do affect particularly people of color right. for a, you know, a variety of systemic supremacist reasons. But I think it's just trying to get those lenses of humanity and what it is, who are you? You're not your job. So who are you? What, what are those labels that are yours? Mother, you know, somebody who likes to learn. It's not the title of, of what you do professionally. What is it that causes you to think in a heart-filled, visceral way that you can bridge to understanding what that mom of that dear young man, Elijah, what she possibly could have been in her heart and understanding that part of her, if that had happened in my household, that would have been an unconscionable, mm. right? I mean, just it wouldn't have made any sense at all. Not that it makes sense at all, but what I understand is that as a mom of color, it is actually a variable you have to constantly think about. And right. that, that, well, and I think, I think that's it. I mean, I, I think what you just said is so powerful because, you know, the Elijah McLean story for people who haven't heard it and you can just Google it. And you and I talked about this over the weekend, but you know, the words that he in fact said yes. as these police yes. were tackling him and, and sort of how in his, even as he was being attacked, what he was trying to do was, to in fact tell them that he was not like the stereotype that they probably had. And so had to be top of mind to basically say, I'm an introvert, right? I'm quiet. I don't, you know, I've I'm not a done anything wrong. Yeah. Right. Just this notion of I'm not who you think I am. And I think it's this extra that I do think of as a burden, right? That, you know, the research for the workplace talks about emotional tax of mm. knowing sometimes what others think of you. Um, and I will say, you know, I think this is really one of the ways I think that the George Floyd murder also touched people in one, you know, this notion of him calling out for his mother in, in all of us who read the story knowing the eight minutes and 46 seconds that he in fact had the officer's knee on his neck. And just that analogy in itself in the black community is talked about a lot, the knee on the neck, right? Which mm. is basically taking away my ability to move. And I think all of us come from, want to come from a heart place around this. I think what you said earlier is so important that we go there versus all of these questions about, well, what did they do? And George Floyd, well, what I heard was, you know, I was asked to help out with a group that I used to volunteer for a statement after the George Floyd murder. And I was very specific when organizations would ask me, particularly ones that I knew, that you need to name the pain, you need to name the violence, you need to, and I got back from one of the members something like, um, well, some people I know don't even agree on how George Floyd died. And I made a point at that point to stop helping them with their statement. 
because first of all, just disrespectful to me, who's been doing this work and writing these statements, right, for the last umpteen days and hours at that point. But to say in the midst of such pain for so many people that you don't know how George Floyd died, when in fact it takes away from the knee on the neck. It takes away from the eight minutes and 46 seconds because somehow we're trying to make sense in our own way. And what that does for many people, it takes away an awareness and and an acknowledgement of the pain and trauma. You know, I received a text from someone over the weekend who's a Black woman who works in the organization. And she said only one person in her company has asked her how Mm. she's doing. She's one of very few Black people. You know, so there's this notion of, well, I'm going to question George Floyd, which is dehumanizing to a person and, again, doesn't see the pain. In. And then there's this notion of sort of saying, well, I'm not going to ask her how she's doing. And I and I would bet some of it's discomfort. But here's a person who was one of the few Black people in this company and only one person approached her and asked her how she was doing. You're right. It's a humanity. Yeah. And it takes away the culpability. Right. Well, yeah. and, it, you know, it's the and mm-hmm. I remember saying this as a, a kid and, and I think it was it, it could have been the disconnect to the anger. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in Arlington, Virginia. And I remember and I, I'm hoping I was in elementary. I hope it wasn't <laughs> in junior high. But God only knows. You know, I did. I remember when, you know, you read The Washington Post, you have extremely smart, intellectual parents who you know, we're just, I won't say participatory, but my mom and dad did a great job of when the riots were going on, you know, trying to explain that to, to little kids. But I can't remember the setting at all. I just am embarrassed to even say I, I said it out loud, but I think I, I didn't understand it. Um, and again, I'm hoping it was elementary, not, not middle school. I should have known by then. But um, mm-hmm. I think I said, but I didn't, but I didn't do it. Right. But I didn't do it. And I think I think I hear that now from all ages of people, but I didn't do it. And I I think for whites, the acknowledgement of the benefit, if we go back to our vocabulary piece, um, the acknowledgement of the benefit of privilege to be able to, and I'll use the word again, antiseptically stand back and watch and choose not to believe or hear and choose not to listen is particularly, well, it certainly is a byproduct of supremacy and a, and a byproduct of power. If it's uncomfortable, I don't have to deal with it. Some of that is because it feels so overwhelming. And it, like, where do I get started? Okay, so I want to get smart on it. So I've got lists to beat the band, right? Of all different kinds of things mm-hmm. from all, all very, very well-meaning people. And I, it's actually been great. But then, okay, so so actually then, Oh, so now I have to be, I can't just read in my office, right? Now I have to be public, right? And then what does that mean? How does that work? What are the consequences of of being public? Are they, and then it's the, are they really consequences, et cetera? But then what goes next? Where does it end? You know, and I'm not sure there's necessarily an end game except to make sure, at least for me, and I know it's, it's small, but it's, it's at least where I can start. I don't want another mom to have to go through that. Now, I understand there's a lot of folks out there that go, jeepers creepers, that's ridiculous. Come on. Because I know this is, the problem is much bigger. But I do believe, and you and I have talked about this too, I do believe that white women in particular, I'm not saying saviors, please hear me when I say that, but white women in particular, 
and particularly at my age, and so I'm 60, um, have got to speak up. They've just got to speak up. And and I mm-hmm. think in terms mm-hmm. of not color, but in terms of humanity, again, what are the roles that I've played, right? So, you know, the best thing is as a mom, but it's a, as a business owner and, and all the other things, community person, all that kind of stuff, have to speak into it and to understand. And it's going to be through your own voice and your own format. So whatever your technique mm-hmm. is, so none of this has to be there's not going to be a how-to book, right? Like, you know, on July 3rd, this is what you're supposed to do on July 4th. It's not a curriculum. There's there's a ton of curricula out there to get smart, not only on becoming a better white person or an anti-racist or just understanding what the heck's going on, right? But also for social movements and organizing and all that kind of stuff. It, it really has to, you have to figure out how you're going to handle this and that silence is no longer an option. It just, it can't be an option. If you see yourself as a human at all, it just can't be an option. And I'm not sure, it, it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. It doesn't mean that you might internally also be saying, this is so uncomfortable, I'm not really sure how far I can go. But I think it is the time to really, mm-hmm. it is the time to show up. Tanya, talk to me about intent um, versus impact. So you've been so kind and the folks that um, you've also connected me with have been so kind as I kind of fumble through the language, right? The nomenclature. But I also do want to talk about, you know, you're trying to say the right thing and do the right thing, but you don't want to, you know, kind of induce any more trauma. Talk to me about what it means for a person of color to walk alongside and, and I mean that, right? Walk alongside, not lead, although it would be, I'm sure be done much more efficiently, but to walk alongside a white person in this journey, I mean, is it okay to stumble? Is it okay to fumble? Is it okay to truly mess it up? Like, you know, I have to, you know, just kind of to step in it and go, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to be saying. I'm certainly not and never will graduate to the level of being woke right? That I see that as aspirational. So mm-hmm. how does a, a well-intentioned white person, how can they get people of color to help walk alongside them in this journey? Mm. Yeah, that's a powerful question. I mean, I don't know that we always can do that. Mm. I, I, I think fair. that particularly right now, uh, you know this, but I've been doing a lot of um, sessions in companies around the U.S. with Black communities, as I've called them, because there are communities. Yes, they're Black employees, but they're communities of people. And I think some people, some Black people in particular right now are saying, I don't actually want to walk beside you. I'm trying to deal with my own stuff right now. And I'm trying to show up in this meeting, one of the only Black people, and then go out of the meeting and hear about Elijah McClain, and then go back in another meeting where I'm one of the only Black people. So... Mm. I think some of it is like having to walk the journey alone. I think the way to do it is to not assume that everyone's going to help you or that everyone should help you, which you don't do, right? And I think that's a big difference. There's not this sense that, you know, someone should help someone. You know, I heard a a woman of a black woman the other day who's an entrepreneur talking about all these people coming into her DM box. Um, you know, direct message asking her for like advice or for things to do. And I get it. And I get that people want to learn. I also get that 
there are other people who we wouldn't expect to give their time to us for free. Mm. We wouldn't go. And I think there's a gender component to that. There's a definitive race component to that. And so what you're seeing many women of color around the country do in particular is, no, you can't pick my brain. No, you can't write to me and ask for me some thoughts about what I what I might do or help you with your strategy for free. You have to pay me. And I think some people are saying, wow, that's a little bold. Well, how often has we have we taken certain people's contributions for granted? So I think it's a really powerful question because we're at a moment in history where some people are saying, actually, you're going to have to do some of this, a lot of it, if not all of it on your own. And if we have a relationship and if there's trust and if we've built that up over time, then that's a different story about how we can walk along this together. But but I, I really think we have to understand that one, the Black community is not a monolith. So that's a period. Next thought. And we know from research that things like the murder of George Floyd, things like the murder of Elijah McLean, this impacts communities of people. This is a trauma. I mean, you know, some people on this call are going to know a lot about trauma, but there are a lot of people who believe that we, in fact, have generational trauma held within our bodies. Mm. So when a George Floyd is murdered or when a Elijah McClain is murdered and you talk about that feeling as a mother, then a black woman who's a mother of a male child, a black male child, mm -hmm. that is sort of a re-triggering of all these things. And so then if some a white person goes up and says, well, what should I read or what should I do? It's sort of like, <laughs> oh listen, God. I'm trying to hold it together yeah, right exactly. now. Um, yeah. And think about my life. God, that was so visceral. I really appreciate that because it's also like, you know, thanks so much for wanting to to finally understand what we've been saying forever. But I just watched a child my kid's age do nothing mm -hmm. wrong and not come home. So find your own damn book list. I mean, seriously, right? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that's I exactly. Yeah. yeah. I completely, that's exactly, yeah. Yeah, I completely understand that. Yeah. So, well, and or, let me just say, I just see the timing, but and or saying that, like, I don't want to only have this, and this is what I'm trying to move people to. I think that George Floyd was a catalyst, mm, you know, and I think mm. that's really important. I also think, though, that there are, there was a piece that came out in Fortune, I think, that was, um, you know, being Black in corporate America that talked about racial micro inequities or racial microaggressions. And I think there's been tons of research in the public public sector, you know, the not-for-profit or social venture sector about, again, the racial microaggressions. So I think we want to look for these big things, but that person that you might be going up to for a list or a suggestion might also just come out of a meeting, which I told you recently, you know, one of the people I spoke to had her boss say to her that they don't see her as Black, yes. right? So it could be these big things or these daily microaggressions that sort of add up for people and really take a toll. Well, and you know, in the um, extremely satirical Southern bless your heart stuff, that's that's what you want to say to that, to the white person who said, oh, I don't see you as black. Why not? I mean, no, we're not, right. I'm not asking you not to see my color. I'm not asking you not to. I'm asking you not to penalize me for, some, for something and put me into a structure that is daily against me and doesn't secure my survival. Just promise me I can survive. But th the system is set up so that, in fact, the odds are it's not going to be about survival for me or my family members. 
So yeah, so this could be a three hour thing and some, someday we'll make it so that, that it will be. But let's think about closing and let's think about what we have an opportunity to do over these next episodes and let folks understand our thinking. So why don't you talk about who the next guest is going to be? Yeah. So, um, I mean, if you're talking about Jane Rosenzweig, so I had recommended her as a great ally who sort of is very much like you in terms of saying, tell me when I mess up. And also has used her awareness of identity and race to actually move things forward in some of the work that she's done internally. And I've just watched her and I've watched her push forward work that some people now would say is quite revolutionary or controversial. And we were doing it several years ago because she pushed it forward And the one thing I just want to say, I know we're out of time, is I also don't want this to be that Black people are only suffering. You know, we also have a fellow grad um, who did a whole project on Black joy, Mm -hmm. right? This Mm -hmm. notion that there's only the suffering or the killing, et cetera. And then we take away that side. You know, when I've been doing these sessions with Black people, I often talk about the history and and ancestral history of resilience, right? And, And what that looks like. And so how do we also talk about, and resistance. Yes. Right. This this history of resilience and resistance. And so how do we also look at that and the joy and the finding joy in spaces and places with all of this going on? I think that to me has also been something I've been looking at a lot in the last couple of weeks, how some of us are finding joy in coming together and talking and, you know, all of these different things, because we also have to say that because otherwise then it gets to be too much. Right. If we if we constantly. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely agree. Thank you so much. For, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you know, the underlying piece of this, it's a lot of work, a lot of sadness, a lot of anger, all that. And I, I'm obviously not going to diminish because of how we have spent this first right. um, episode together. But I think to underscore that there is joy, that the notion of resilience and mm-hmm. understanding uh, the resilience of people of color it is, quite frankly, for me, amazing. So there, there are all these components of strength and creativity and love and joy and happiness and family and so much that we can share. There just are these systems bent on holding down people that in a time when those constructs, they have to be dismantled so that we can fully enjoy the humanness of everyone. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm so excited. I've talked with Jane and I think it's going to be great. So we we have purposely chosen a white person to talk to in this journey for me because it absolutely makes uh, sense. And I appreciate Tanya for constructing it that way. As we move forward into the other episodes, we'll bring along people who will specifically speak to different roles that somebody can take on in their life and how the effect of learning about the lives of people of color, uh, the lives of those who are in the power structure, the lives of white people, and how all that mixes together in a very positive way, but in real negative and challenging ways, might allow people to hold on to certain things and help in their journey as well. Yeah, that, absolutely. And to, and to make mistakes in a way that feels safe, right? Because it's not easy to make mistakes. And so how do you have conversations with people who give you a different perspective based upon their learning? Because we are at different journeys in, in the learning. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, because to do it in front of a lot of people like we're doing here, honestly, I would not have the courage to do it were you not there helping me. I just think this is going to be an extraordinary opportunity quite selfishly 
for me, but, but hopefully for those who are listening as well. And both Tanya and I are very open to conversations and, and questions. Uh, you can certainly do that through the McFarland Group's website, uh, where I am always looking for resources. So feel free if there's some that you want to share. We do want this to be a conversation. So, you know, we're open to um, fielding questions and comments as well. It is time to wrap. Unfortunately, this has been a great way to start. Tanya, is there anything um, at the end you might like to say as we wrap? Just that I think that other people can learn from your learning, right? How can people take this conversation and think about what rubbed them the wrong way, what they learned what they want to Google, what they want to read about, just, you know, how does it not just become something we listen to and then move on? So, you know, that your learning could also be sort of a catalyst for others learning. Well, I appreciate you so much. You are a true blessing to the world. And I hope that you are taking care of yourself as you take care of thousands of people who are wrestling with these questions um, and have over the last quarter of a century, but now seems to be an, a time of opportunity. So, Tanya, thank you again and forever. And uh, we'll circle back. And to everyone who's been listening, this has been an extraordinary way to get started. And I'm grateful to everyone. Thanks to Tanya Odom for the conversation today. This podcast, 3 a.m., What's Keeping You Up at Night has begun a journey through the balance of this year to understand what anti-racism is, can look like, must look like, for a white woman and hopefully others. The conversations I will enter into will certainly be uncomfortable, but necessary, certainly be challenging, but required, and certainly come from the heart to learn how to disrupt the status quo to make our country better. Thank you for joining me. Please share this conversation. Please send me your resources, articles, books, videos, your thoughts, and your questions to help me in this journey. We are better together. We are better as a whole of glorious differences. We have much to do. Let's get started.